Great to see everyone this morning. Uh, if you're new here, my name's Matt. I'm the pastor here of Tri-City Church. And uh, along with Amy, I want to welcome you. Uh, great to have you here on this uh, sunny and blustery uh, Sunday morning. Uh, we have been working our way through uh, Luke 3 and 4 in a series uh, called Preparing the Way. And so this morning, we find ourselves in Luke 4, uh, verses 31 to 37. So it's a great time to open up your Bible. Uh, if ever you uh, forget your Bible or you don't have one, we will always have them on the tables as you enter, and you're very welcome to grab one and use it. If you don't have a Bible, you can take it home with you. We would, we would love to make that available to you. Uh, but now is the time to turn there. Uh, we're going to be in verses 31 to 37, and uh, I thought I would begin with prayer, and then we'll move into our, our text this morning. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for your blessing, Lord, that uh, we can gather here, and Lord, we can... We can have the assurance that you are with us. Uh, Lord, we have the privilege, the, the benefit of coming here in peace, uh, being able to gather together. Uh, Lord, I pray that this would be a beneficial time for everyone here, Lord, whether we are followers of Christ, whether we're just here checking things out, whether we've been invited. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to us and God, that we would, uh, we would be moved. Um, I pray, Lord, in spite of my own sin, my own failings, uh, Lord, that you would give me words uh, that would be in accordance with your truth and Lord, that would be a help to your people. And Lord, we pray especially, God, that, uh, that we would come to know you more today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm not sure about you, your routine in the morning, uh, but for me, I, I love a good glass of, of not coffee, not a mug of coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker. I know for all of us, we're on our third or fourth cup uh, by 12, whatever time it is. Uh, but for me, I love a glass of, of juice. Always loved juice. Uh, it's, I know, full of sugar, but it's natural sugar, so it's got to be good for you. Um, I love, ju- uh, you know, fruit smoothies. Uh, when I was a kid, we would get these little cans of Sunripe uh, apricot juice. It was probably lead-lined, and so they've discontinued them, but, <laughs> but I would get one of those. only allowed one per morning. Uh, we'd get the concentrated juice that you'd, you know, put three cans of water in, mix it up. I would, I would just always love a good glass of juice. Um, there are sometimes, though, that I would go to a neighbor's house and I would come for lunch, and they would give me a glass of what was supposedly juice. But when I drank it, I would, I would just be disgusted. I'd be like, what? This is water. And, and what I'd realize what would happen is, is that the mom or dad, you know, wanting to cut sugar or something, they would, instead of adding three cans of water, they would just fill the jug up to the top. And so you'd get this really watery juice that was, I would just get incensed. If you want to drink water, drink water. Juice is supposed to taste like something. It's supposed to have a kick, right? It's supposed to feel the sugar just oozing into your body. It's the way it was meant to be. So we know, though, this, uh, this idea. We have the expression. When something is watered down, whether it's juice or some other beverage or, or anything in life, we know that it's, it's kind of a, a diluted version of the way that something should be. Well, we're going to see in our text this morning that the Word of God itself can be watered down. In fact, at the time of Jesus, the word of God had often become watered down. Uh, Its authority and power had been diluted by human wisdom. Uh, If you know Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, uh, you know that he was basically a, a traveling speaker. And this morning, we see a scene where he is on a Saturday. They would meet on Saturdays for Sabbath. He's in the town of Capernaum. And as he stands up to teach, which is what he would do kind of every other, uh, every other Sabbath, 
He teaches in a way that is vastly different from what the people are used to. It's like a glass of pure juice to someone who's used to some watery version of of juice. They're astonished. They're amazed at the teaching of Jesus. And so we're going to look and we're going to see what it is that is different about his word, that the authority and power that comes with it. But we're also going to see that there is opposition to the word. That though his word comes with, with all the power and authority of God himself, there is, there is opposition right there within the synagogue. So with all that in mind, we're going to turn our attention to Luke 4, starting in verses 31. And here is God's word to us this morning. And he, that is Jesus, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent! And come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. That's God's word to us this morning. You see that it really does uh, focus on the word of Jesus, the word of God. It looks at the authority of the word, the power of the word, and the opposition that comes. And so that's, that's how we're going to make our way through the text. Uh, firstly, first point is going to be the authority of the word, then the opposition to it, and then the power of the word. So let's begin with the authority. Now obviously, uh, this is not your typical Saturday in Capernaum. Uh, this is not what typically happens. They would have uh, kind of traveling speakers that would come. That part was normal. Uh, the sermon portion of it, in a sense, was, was normal. But for this, I mean, this is not a big village. It's just on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, kind of a smaller fishing village, uh, prosperous. It's a, a good place to live and work. Uh, we actually have uh, the remains of the very synagogue that Jesus would have stood in. I, I found a photo. You can see it there. Uh, it's looking like ruins, as it always does. But you can kind of imagine that that's where he would have stood, This was the typical routine, kind of like for us. If you gather with us regularly, we come on a Sunday morning for them, Saturday. They would hear a part of scripture from the Old Testament read, and then someone would would get up and they would speak. Uh, This is what we see in verses 31 and 32. But look at the, the reaction from the people as he spoke. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So notice that the thing that was different, the thing that astonished them, was that he spoke with authority. We're told that very, very clearly. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, he was domineering. It doesn't mean that he was kind of browbeating them. What it means is that when he spoke, they felt the wisdom and the will of God as a weight upon their very souls. That they felt as if they were, they were hearing from God directly. Now, this was not something that they were used to. See, at that time, in that place, the, the people of God were kind of like that poor kid down the street, right, whose mom had been watering down the juice since he was a baby. And so he thinks that he's drinking juice every day, but he's just getting some watery version of the true juice. And now Jesus comes in and speaks, and people, it's like they're taking a gulp of like fruit and nectar for the first time, and just their mind are blown that anything could taste so good. 
They didn't know this was how it was supposed to be. See, at the time, they just weren't used to it. They were used to a teaching that was, that was diluted of power and authority. And that's because what had been mixed in was a lot of human wisdom. Uh, this becomes clear when you, uh, we look at the book of Mark and the parallel passage. In Mark 22, we find this. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So the scribes were the, the religious teachers at the time. And what we know from uh, Jewish tradition is that the bulk of their teaching would be referring to the teaching of other rabbis. So they would say, like, Rabbi Halil says this, or Rabbi Gamaliel says this. In fact, uh, Rabbi Eliezer, who's one of the uh, prominent rabbis from the first century, he's quoted as saying this, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. That was, that was what they brought to the people of God each week. So instead of, instead of coming to hear from God, they were coming to hear a lot of human wisdom which is a very different thing and very different from what the prophets of the Old Testament would do and when they were, they were bringing the word of God to the people. Here we have just one example of many uh, from the book of Isaiah where Isaiah 56.1, Isaiah speaks and says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. There in the clarity and the conviction, the, the directness of the word, the weight of God's will for the people is made known. That was how Jesus taught. Not in a heavy-handed way, not in a second-handed way, but with clarity and conviction, with authority that was rooted in the word of God so that people would hear from God rather than simply hearing thoughts about God. Now, obviously, for those of us who know Jesus, you would say, well, of course, he's going to teach that way. I mean, the Bible says that he is the word of God. We see this in John chapter 1. The, the whole part is how he is the word. Here's uh, the, one of the clearest verses, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This means that, that Jesus, that he is the complete and clear revelation of God to the people of the world. So it's, it's no wonder that when Jesus teaches that he will teach with authority. But the truth is that all true preaching must come with the authority of God. And by that I don't mean that any preacher is to stand up here with any sense of authority in himself. But rather that as we open the word of God... And as we make it clear, that's the job of any preacher to come up and simply say, this is what God is saying here in this passage, that in that process, there is an inherent authority that's rooted in the word of God. It's the same authority that Jesus would have spoken with. And so today, the authority of God's word remains. And that's what, that's what we come for. And the sad truth, though, is that many people who gather on now a, a Sunday morning, unfortunately, still can get a watered-down version of of the truth, a watered-down version of the Word of God. And so why is that? Why is it that there's this tendency for, for there to be a lack of authority, as it were? Well, I think one of the main reasons is that divine authority, it, it tends to make people uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's much easier to hear uh, a word or some words about God rather than a word from God. Because if you hear words about God, then you can, you can decide if you want to accept them or not. That's much more comfortable. In fact, that's how we prefer life to be. 
Just think of in your daily life when someone's speaking to you, what do we do? Well, we think, are they crazy? Are they, is what they're saying true? We always have the option to believe or disbelieve or reject it. Even from those people who we, we have to kind of believe, we have to go along with, like our boss or our, our parents maybe. Right? We have to do what they say, but in our minds and our hearts, we can be like, you're totally wrong. I don't have to listen to you. I have to believe you. feels much more comfortable for us to always be the, the ultimate point of authority in our lives. But when there's a word from God that is authoritative and true in its nature, then that's something that, that's more difficult to reject. That's something that tends to sometimes make us feel uncomfortable. We, we, we feel more comfortable. We, we feel more at peace when the word that we're hearing is, is more of a suggestion rather than a command. But see, a watered-down understanding of God's word is, is really no comfort at all. I mean, just think of how many times you have been sure that your idea is going to lead to greater comfort and greater help in your life. And yet when you've done it, you've found out that it ends up just the opposite. How many times have you gone with your own wisdom and realized, man, that, that was not a good idea. I should have listened to the people in my life or my own conscience, and yet we, we go our own way. It's, it's so much better for us to trust completely and fully in the word that's been given to us. And so the question for us this morning is, is what is our disposition to the word of God? I mean, for the people on that Saturday morning, they were, they were astonished because they'd never really heard the word taught in that way. And they never felt that they were really hearing from the mouth of God. And so for you, as you, as you open up your Bible, like in your own daily devotion, as you walk in on a Sunday morning, whether it's this church or another, like what's the disposition of your heart? Are you coming with, with kind of a critical mindset that you would, you would use in any other human teaching? Like, mm, I'm going to see if this is something that I should receive or not. Or have you embraced the idea that as you, as you read this, the words on this page, that there's an opportunity to really hear from the mouth of God. And the difference is, is one of whether we embrace it or not. Whether we come and we, we're in prayer saying, Lord, I, I know you're speaking to me. God, would you help me to hear it? More than that, Lord, would you help me to be shaped by it? Would you help me not to have a sort of a, a critical mind? To, to genuinely be open because the thing is when God speaks we don't always feel comfortable, but we are always helped. We are always blessed. In fact, we are often pushed in areas that we would prefer not to be pushed in, and yet it's the very best thing for us. And what we see here in Capernaum is that the people, maybe for the first time in a long while, are, are really being pushed. We, we don't know exactly what Jesus was saying, but we know that they felt the authority of God, and it was a great blessing. Of course, not everyone was so enthused. There's opposition here in Capernaum as well. Let's shift to the next point. There's opposition to the word. Look at verses 33 and 34. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And we saw that Satan came to tempt Jesus. And there we said, well, look, Satan, according to the Bible, he is a real being, a spiritual being, one who is intent on obstructing all of the plans of God in the world. 
And with demons, it's very much the same thing. Demons are fallen angels. They also are spiritual beings. They are enacting the the plans of Satan, which is to disrupt the plans of God. They love evil and they hate God. They hate the gospel. They hate the idea that there might be those that are saved from their sin. And so their goal is to disrupt the plans of God by any means necessary, by, by tormenting or distracting the people of God. And clearly we see that they have some measure of power and influence, but it is limited. And one of the most important things that we can know about demons we see very clearly here in this passage. And that is that demons are terrified of Jesus. Do you see that in the reaction? In fact, every time that we see a demon come into contact with Jesus, it's this very similar kind of reaction. That, that uh, expression, ha, is, is almost better translated like, get out of here. Like, like go away. We don't want you here. You see, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? They know that that's a possibility. They know it's going to happen, but their question is, is it today? Is that why you're here? And this last part's a little, little trickier. They say, I, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, that's not a, a, an acknowledgement in terms of an admiration or worship of Jesus as the Holy One of God. It's, see, back in that time, um, the idea that if you were to have the exact knowledge over an opponent's name or, or, or an enemy's identity, it would, it would, in a sense, they believed, give you the upper hand. That's kind of the, the nature of what's going on here. I mean, we see the same thing today, right? On the street, a lot of you know, I'm from the street, right? I talk the street, you know how it is. So on the street, <laughs> what you do is someone comes up to you, right? You're on the court, you're trash talking each other and you say, hey, I know you. And someone will push back, you don't know me. Say, yeah, yeah, I know you, which means you better keep walking because I got your number. You don't want to mess with this, right? You guys, you know how it is. So the same idea is being said here. Thank you for everyone. I'll stop now. So the same idea is, is being expressed here. But like that, it's just a lot of words, right? It's kind of big talk, but not a lot behind it. And we see that every time that Jesus comes into contact with a demon. There's, there's some resistance, there's some show of force, but very quickly it ends not just in an expression of defeat, but actually angst, terror. Look at some of these examples. Uh, later on in Luke 4, And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. Luke 8, 28, When he, this is a, a demon, saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And James two nineteen, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Literally, there are shivers that run up their spine when they, when they come into the presence of Jesus, into the presence of God. Clearly, there is a vast discrepancy in power between demons and Jesus. But I think there's more going on here than just that. Because there are many times, even in Scripture, where we see sort of uh, someone come up against someone else who has greater power. Right? The little guy going up against the big guy. And in that situation, generally speaking, the little guy comes in with a lot of confidence. It's the only hope he has. Right? He thinks maybe he'll get in a quick shot, a lucky upper right hook, something, and then he'll gain the upper hand. But that's, that's not what we see here. It's a very different thing when you come against someone who has greater power than you and they have already defeated you soundly. Like they've humiliated you. Your disposition is very, very different. 
See, there was a point where Satan and his demons, they came against the powers of God in a full frontal assault. They tried to claim the throne of heaven. We see this throughout the scriptures, that, that there was a moment where Satan led all of these angels in rebellion. Uh, in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15, we, we have a picture of it. It's, it's really uh, speaking in the specific context about the king of Babylon, but the language is so uh, grandiose and transcendent that most scholars say that there's a, there's a glimpse here probably of what Satan and his demons tried to do in heaven. Even the term Odaystar is often translated Lucifer. So here's what we see in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Daystar, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Notice there you see the, uh, the bravado, the self-confidence, the sense of determined purpose in the face of a superior opponent. But things didn't go well for them. We see in Jude 6 that it wasn't even a contest. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we see that the outcome was one of resounding defeat and continual domination by God, that they are somehow, even though they're at work in the world, somehow still kept in gloomy darkness, somehow still restrained by the power of God. And so now that's how they work. There's no full frontal assault. They, they work in the, in the dark edges of our life, in the corners of the world. They don't want to be noticed. They want to come slyly to tempt us and disrupt us. They, they still are intent on disrupting the plans of God, but, but we need to see them for who they are. They remind me of, of soldiers that have come back from war and they're suffering from shell shock. And so any loud noise, there are certain things that transport them back to the horrors of the battlefield. They're, they're broken emotionally and psychologically. This is an accurate description of these supposedly formidable adversaries. That they too are broken because of the defeat they've experienced and because of where they will end up. This is really good for us to know. Because the reality of demonic opposition was not just true for Jesus in his time, but it's also true today. Especially if we are leading lives intent on shining the gospel of Jesus through the word of God. I mean, that's always where we will encounter opposition because we are at work. We are obeying God. We are going forth with a light into the dark world. And it's always when you shine light into the darkness that the, the vermin will be exposed, right? I mean, it... It's true in the spiritual world. It's also true in the natural world. When do you find out if you have a cockroach infestation? Well, it's when you turn on the lights. It's when you go down into the basement. I mean, for the Glezos family, we are currently involved in a major conflict with an agent of darkness in our backyard. It's a rat that <clears throat> we didn't know was there at first. He had made his home kind of during the winter months and it made a little home next to our barbecue and a little cabinet thing we had. And it wasn't until we came out into the backyard, until Don planted all our vegetables, that we started to realize, hey, something's going on here. The cabbages keep getting eaten. 
And there's this stink next to the barbecue. So we have to pull everything out, power wash everything. And now we are in open conflict. Traps have been set. Poison has been laid. We have prayed that the mighty hand of God would come and smite this evil adversary. Hasn't happened yet, but... We see the same thing really on this day in Capernaum. That, that demon had probably been there in that man's life for a while. And yet it wasn't until Jesus came with the word of God and shone a light into his life that the adversary was roused. That opposition occurred. And it's the same thing in our lives and in the life of our church. To the extent that we are committed to the word of God, there will be opposition. And hear me, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a surprising thing. Right? The, the fact that there's opposition in your life does not mean you're, that you're going down the wrong road. It probably means you're on the exact right road, doing what God has called you to do. And as you are doing that, as you are looking for opportunities to make known the word of God, that there is opposition. Maybe in your own heart. Maybe from the people around you. But if there's no opposition, it may be that you're you're not shining the light the way that you think you are. It may be that you're, you're kind of hunkered down, enjoying a veneer of peace, but you're missing the opportunity to challenge the darkness in different areas of influence you have. See, opposition isn't a bad thing, especially when we live in a world full of evil and injustice, especially when those of us who, who are followers of Christ recognize that we are a sent people, the whole reason that we're here, the whole reason that Jesus established the church was for us to go out into the world, to shine the light of the gospel, to bring the word of God to bear on all of the falsity that's in the world. And when we do that, there's going to be opposition. And it's not a bad thing. It's something to be expected and not something to be feared. Because we see here in the text of scripture the, the reality of this supposedly formidable force that they in fact are shell-shocked and defeated opponents who are terrified at the very name of Jesus. And we see why. Because with a word, Jesus commands them to be gone. This is our third point. The power of the word. In verse 35, we see it. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So we see that Jesus really does two things. He casts him out and silences him. We need to look at both of these things. Uh, the casting out is an amazing display of power. Really, that simply through the word, that G at Jesus' command, this evil spirit is compelled to flee. This is all the more amazing when you realize that this had never, ever happened before. When we read the Bible, especially the New Testament, it seems like this is obvious. Of course this is what Jesus is going to do. He does it time and again throughout his whole ministry. But up to this point, there is no other record of someone speaking in this way to an evil spirit, having them simply flee. There's, there's instances of definitely demonic opposition. We see from, from Genesis 3 all the way through that there is activity of darkness in the people of the world. There's something close to it in the life of Saul, King Saul. If you know that story, he has a, a harmful spirit that comes upon him. And David comes with his lyre and plays it and, and it, it eases it, that the Spirit leaves, but it seems that it's kind of a cyclical thing, that it happens again and again. There's, there's no one who commands with authority for that, that spirit to leave. This is something new. 
There are also uh, extra biblical sources, you know, not found in the Bible, of other ways that people would try to, um, try to oppose these forces, try to cast out demons as it were. There, there's a whole manner of sort of grandiose things they would do. Uh, for example, one way is they would, they would put a ring under someone's nose, they would uh, you know, recite a spell, and there'd be a basin of water nearby, and then all of a sudden they'd hear a splash, and they would say, there, the demon is, is gone. Uh, there's another strange method where they would uh, tie a dog to a, a root, called a bear's root, and, and if the dog pulled the root out and then died thereafter, they would say, see, that the demon has left. There's a lot of showmanship, but not really a lot of results. It's totally different than what we see here. Here, there's no hocus pocus. It's, it's Jesus speaking a word and this spirit obeying, being compelled to obey. And so we see here for the first time really a glimpse of the hope for humanity. It's a complete freedom from the powers of darkness, something that no one has ever seen or experienced before. And so it's no wonder that they are amazed, they are astonished that simply by his word that the demon must obey. But Jesus doesn't just cast him out. He also silences him. Have you noticed that that happens fairly often? Like when Jesus is dealing with evil spirits, he, he, often, he always casts them out, but he also silences them. And you have to wonder, why does he, like, why does he do that? Why, why, does he, why is that important? Some people say, suggest, that perhaps it's because he just doesn't want them to make his true identity known at that time. Which, which has some credibility because Jesus does other things. Like he heals people and then says, don't tell anyone who did it. Or he says to the disciples, don't tell anyone yet who I am because the time is not yet right for everyone to know that I'm the Messiah. So it could be part of that. But I think there's more going on here. If we think for a moment about Satan's main weapon against us, I think we'd have to say that it's, that it's words. It's lies, right? I mean... You see in the Old Testament, there are definitely other ways that Satan has influence, can impact us. In the life of Job, for instance, we see that he wreaks all manner of havoc in his life. Health, circumstantially, just he wrecks it in lots of different ways. There are times when, when the forces of darkness have those kinds of influence in our life. But most of the time, Satan's greatest weapon is, is deception, is words of deception and, and more specifically, when he takes the word of God and he twists it to his own evil ends. I mean, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. He came speaking about the words of God. Did God not say this? And then he twists it to lead Adam and Eve to the point of disobedience. We see it also uh, in the temptation of Jesus. That he comes speaking about the, the word of God. That's how he tries to, to trick Jesus, to lead him astray. To speak the truth, but with evil intentions. Or, or half of the truth. That's always his tactic. That's his, his best weapon because it is so successful. Because we are plagued by lies. Lies that lead us to a point where we are farther away from God. We are, where we are no longer comforted by the truths of God. Just as an example. A couple of examples. Many people have, have heard the biblical truth. That God hates sin but then come to the conclusion that that means he couldn't possibly love them because they are a sinner. They, they feel, have felt all their life, um, condemnation and guilt and shame because 
Because God hates sin. God is pure and perfect. Because how could he possibly love me? How could he forgive me given all that I've done? Given who I am? It's true that God hates sin. But they're missing the complementary truth that God loves sinners. That God has demonstrated his love for each and every sinner by the sending of his son. That God has so loved us that he sent his son not to condemn the world but to save the world. We need those two truths to come together to understand the complete truth. And yet those lies plague many of us. On the flip side, there are those that have heard of the love of God and land hard there. That God is love. And so that means he accepts us as we are and he's fine with us staying as we are. Because he loves us. How could he have any judgment if he, if he is love? And so we live our lives not with a care in the world about our holiness or about turning from sin because God loves us. And in the end, that will win out. And so we're beginning with a biblical truth that yes, God is love. But we're missing the fact that if he truly loves us, he will accept us as we are and he will make it his mission to shape us and change us. To turn away from all that is destroying us and to walk more closely with Christ. That is a truth that lifts us up. That is a truth that truly helps us. But when we have a a half-truth or a lie that is disguised as truth, it always leads us farther into despair. It's no wonder that Jesus silences the demons, even when they are speaking such glorious truths as, you are the Holy One of God. See, that's true. But Jesus knows that that demon is not speaking that truth because he wants people to know and worship Jesus. He knows that the intention of the enemy is always to, to begin there and lead towards deception. To confound us or, or trip us up. And so Jesus simply silences the demon every time. And it's a good word for us. For us to be able to recognize those thoughts perhaps, those, those words that have been spoken into our lives or that are rattling around in our brain that are, that are half-truths. That are weighing us down because of the deception that are leading us farther and farther away from God. And so you'd ask, well, how, how do I know? How do I know if that's something that is not totally true or something that is a half-truth? How would I possibly know that? Well, the, the beauty of the word is that it is the pure truth of God. That as we come to it and we say, Lord, would you, would you change me and shape me? God, would you help me to identify those thoughts which are not true, which have the the shape of truth, but are not truly true, that are somehow weighing me down with something that is false. As we come to know the word of God, we will come to see the truth more clearly. And if you are confused, I'd, I'd invite you and I'd, I'd plead with you to come to someone here, a, a community group leader, come to us after and just, just, you know, just ask, hey, it, man, there's something that I've been thinking about and it just, it feels like a weight on my soul. Like, is this true? Is this what God really thinks? Is this what God really said? We would love to open the pages of scripture and to bring light because the word of truth is the thing that it casts out all lies. It casts out all darkness. And as we become people of the word, then we will have what we need do spiritual battle. Because this text is not a recipe for some sort of, you know, strange ministry where we're looking to cast out demons everywhere. It's a recipe for knowing the word better because in it, we have everything we need. The essence of spiritual warfare is knowing the word of God, knowing what's true, being able to speak 
into lies, being able to cast out lies from our own minds, being able to help others who are believing lies and to say, no, here's who Jesus is. Here's who God is. He loves you deeply. Let's look here in the word and find out what is revealed about him. The truth is that that we do live in the midst of a battlefield and it's a battlefield of words. It's a battlefield of ideas that in our own lives, in our own families, in our community, it's very easy to get to the point where we are overwhelmed by the, by the words of darkness, by the lies that people are believing and, and they believe so clearly that this is good, this is right. We see it in our schools we see it in our, in our public forums where people are latching on to things that they think is going to be best for humanity and yet it is leading them astray. It's very easy for us if we're in the midst of some sort of opposition like this to just feel overwhelmed. To feel like, man, Lord, I, I know that your word is true. I believe that it has power, but God, I, it's hard to believe that when I see all of the destruction around me and I see the momentum that is gaining by the forces of darkness. God, I know the end of the story, but... For me to have hope right now, Lord, what, what hope is there? What hope is there that the, the words, that the lies of darkness will actually be silenced in my life and in the life of those I love? Well, I want to leave you with, a, with an image that I think will be hopeful. Sort of an analogy that I think will help us to, to think about this battle that we are in. Whether you're experiencing it right now personally or just see it around you. And the image that came to my mind as I thought about this was, was one of great destruction. And that's a volcano. I thought of it, I think, because you, you might know there's a, there's a few volcanoes that are erupting. Uh, one in Hawaii, one in Guatemala. And they're causing great havoc. I mean, there are so many ways in which a volcano brings destruction. There's the toxic gases. There's the ash clouds. And of course, there's the lava flows that just destroy everything in their path. I found some pictures so you could just be reminded. We don't have any volcanoes around here and so we, we forget, but this is molten rock that is flowing sometimes very swiftly and just taking out everything in its path. There's cars that are just destroyed. Things that we think would be very, very difficult to move and, and deal with. They just bowls right over. And evil people's homes. And see, the thing about lava is that its, its force is so great it's so dense that there's really nothing that can stop it. There's no government program where they can come in and they can try to divert it. It just, it bowls through everything. People just have to abandon their homes. That's the destructive power of a volcano and it strikes me that sometimes we feel like that's, that's the destructive power of Satan and demons and sin in the world. That we look around us and we think, man, it, it just seems to be gaining momentum. That even though I'm, I'm doing my best and even though I see pockets of, of light, but man, there seems to be so much darkness that people's minds are so clouded. Lord, what hope is there this will ever stop? And the thing that occurred to me is that there is actually something that can stop lava. There's something that's been stopping lava ever since the beginning of lava, which is the ocean. The ocean always stops the flow of lava. It's, it's immensity. It's... It's coldness. It, it stops the fiery heat of molten rock. And it stops it advancing. More than just stopping it, what the ocean does is it takes the destructive power of a volcano and it turns it into something good. Because it builds islands. 
I mean, I know that right now we, our hearts break for those people who have had to abandon their homes on Hawaii, but let's not forget that the whole reason there is a Hawaii is because of volcanoes, because they erupt, and because the, the ocean stops their destructive power and forms them into new islands, which are a platform for new life. And that's a good image, I think, of what God is doing in the world when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to the word of God. That the commitment we can have is that as Jesus spoke to that demon and cast him out, in like manner, all of the evil in the world will at one point be cast out. And even before that happens, we have the clear teaching of scripture that all of the evil in our very lives, for those who know and love Jesus, will be turned to good. That there will be life that comes, even from the most intense, fiery trials. And so we're brought once again to the great truth that there is authority, that there is power in the word of God because it reveals the word of God. Jesus himself, the one who came and even though was put to death in, in the most heinous of ways, even that was brought about for our great good, that we can now have freedom from sin, freedom from oppression and tyranny of the dark forces around us. And so my hope this morning, I think what God has for us is the encouragement that whatever it is that you are dealing with, and there's a whole spectrum of opposition in our lives. It could be something supernatural like we're seeing here. It could simply be a, a lingering depression. It could be a sense of just resistance when we're, we're trying to be obedient, trying to do what God tells us, and yet things keep going off the rails. It's good for us to know that opposition isn't necessarily a bad thing. And that even in the midst of it, God is at work when we devote ourselves to the word, when we're informed and transformed by it. So with that in mind, let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that, that it is a source of such a strength and help for us. I pray, God, for those of us who, who are your followers here, Lord, I, I pray, God, that this would be an encouragement to us today. I pray, God, that whatever it is that we're dealing with in our lives, Lord, as we go forward, we would, we would hold fast to your word. Jesus, we would be in it daily. You would be speaking to us and, and ministering to us through it. And I pray, God, also for those who are here and, and haven't come to the point of faith, God, I pray that you would still be speaking to them through your word. And Lord, that there, if there are questions, there are, are doubts, or, or whatever the case may be, I pray, God, that there would be good answers that would be given. And Lord, ultimately, that you would... Um, Help them to see the light of Christ. And God, I do pray for our city. I pray, God, for our schools, for our community. I pray, Lord, that the light of the word of God would go forth. And Lord, that you would use us, Lord, to, to graciously, tenderly, kindly speak into the lives of those around us. That we might offer genuine help, genuine comfort. Not because it has anything to do with our wisdom, but because it has everything to do with your word. And I pray, Lord, that through this, you would receive much glory and we'd be blessed. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.